Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The following program contains distressing content and graphic details regarding suicide. This may be triggering for survivors of suicide loss and those with lived experience. Please proceed with caution. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in for another Q&A episode. We've continued receiving tons and tons of new questions, and I appreciate you all reaching out with those. We'll try and address a lot in this episode. As usual, you'll be hearing from me in this episode, but I also pulled in Sheila, our private investigator, to take some questions as well. Let's get into it. is to clarify the relationship between Christian and Dylan and Whitley. Was Dylan Christian's friend and through that friendship knew Whitley or was Dylan Whitley's friend that Christian came to know through his relationship with Whitley? Just always wondered that and if it was discussed, I must have missed it. So appreciate if you could clarify. Thanks. We've been told that Whitley and Dylan were friends for years before Christian became friends with either of them. Christian met Dylan around 2007 or 2008 during his freshman year at Northeast Lauderdale High School. But it's our understanding that they were just acquaintances and didn't really become friends or start hanging out regularly until around the time that Christian and Whitley started dating in 2013. I'm from Mississippi, and I was just calling with a general question, which is at the end of all of this, and maybe you can't go into it much here because there's more to the podcast, but I was wondering, what are you hoping will happen? This podcast is already exceeding my expectations. Witnesses are coming forward, tips are coming in, and we're getting a better picture on what actually happened to Christian that day. The podcast is exposing all the injustices that have happened during this investigation. It also shines a light on how families have to fight the people that are supposed to protect and serve them in order to get answers. This is backwards. The family didn't do anything wrong and Christian didn't do anything wrong. There is no reason that they have to fight this hard for answers unless there is something going on behind the scenes. And the podcast is helping to expose that, too. Yeah, one question I had was the Xanax that it was implied that Whitley had been taking often. That severely clouds your memory, I know, and some people black out completely from things that have happened. I just want to know if there was any more talk about that portion of her statement and if that had any effect on it. Thanks. 
According to Whitley, she had been taking Xanax the night before Christian's death. Xanax was a commonly abused drug in the circle of friends. Some of the psychological side effects of Xanax abuse include difficulty concentrating or focusing on the task at hand, hallucinations or delusions, memory loss, confusion or forgetfulness, mood swings, depression, and suicidal thoughts. Hey guys, this is Lindsay from Tennessee. I've been listening to the Coppola podcast. Really interesting information. I'm a visual person, so I've been thinking, you know, trying to visualize what the, the layout of the bathroom was like, where Christian was, even the, uh, they say the ricocheted gunshot hole in the wall or, or whatever they're calling it. Um, is there a diagram somewhere of what the scene looked like? And just to, we can wrap our minds around it a bit more, or would you be able to come up with some sort of diagram and post to the website? You know, just, just a thought. Um, hopefully we can get a, a bit more information, and we we'll really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks. Bye-bye. On our website, you can find Michael Knox's diagrams of the bathroom, as well as Ryan Ryder's videos from the Pharaoh Machine Scans. Go to culpablepodcast.com. In the top right-hand corner, click on Listen, then click on Episode 12, The Investigation, Part 2. Hi, this is Nicole from Michigan. I'm enjoying your podcast, and I just had a question about Episode 9. When Dylan was giving testimony, and he was talking about going to the bank and receiving a call from Christian and or texting Christian. Christian said that he was texting bank information and then he went from that to going to AT&T to help um, fix Christian's phone. So I wondered which phone Christian was texting Dylan from. Was it Whitley's or was he caught in a lie because Christian didn't actually have his phone? I'm just wondering if there's any more information about that. Thank you. Bye. Christian owned two cell phones, an iPhone and an HTC phone. Christian's HTC phone was left behind on his boat when he was picked up by Dylan and St. Rose. So the only phone that would have been in his possession after leaving the boat was his iPhone. And to answer your question directly, his iPhone was being used to text with Dylan while he was at the bank. According to Dylan, he was going to the AT&T store to fix Whitley's phone not Christians. I know you mentioned there was a 911 call. I'm curious, will that ever be released? I know in other podcasts they've actually played the 911 call. I didn't know if they're not releasing it for a certain reason or why can't we get a copy of that 911 call. I'm not sure if it would be telling or not or if we could analyze Dylan's voice and the manner of how he called. Uh, I'm not sure if it's helpful, but I'm just curious why we can't get the 911 call. Thanks. Obtaining the 911 call has been an ongoing battle for the Andriacchios, who have requested a copy of it numerous times over the years. All requests have been denied because 911 calls are exempt from public records in the state of Mississippi, meaning requests for 911 calls through the Freedom of Information Act can be denied. In May of 2019, Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV sent a request for the 911 call, but our request was also denied. The 911 call was finally released in July of 2019, when the AG's office released Christian's case file. We have received a copy of the file, and we will address the 911 call in an upcoming episode. Hi, my name is Bryn. I am calling about a lot of focus 
on the investigation initially, there was a lot of talk about the positioning of Christian's body when he was found and that it was clear that it had been manipulated and moved from, you know, where he would have originally fallen. And I just was wondering why that was such an essential clue into the investigation. I mean, I understand the lividity in the back of his legs and those clues suggesting that it had been quite a while until they called police about the body being found. I just am trying to understand why that was such an essential clue. Granted, there is so much other evidence that shows that something is not quite right. Anyway, I love the podcast and look forward to hearing the Q&A this Thursday. Bye. The lividity is very important in this case for multiple reasons, and this is where it's important to consider other information that we know of like additional science, in Whitley and Dillon's statements. First of all, it takes hours for lividity to develop. According to Whitley and Dillon's statements, there is nothing that says Christian was left unattended for hours. Dillon says he went to Best Buy, which is five minutes away, asked about speakers, and came back and found them almost immediately. Not to mention, Dr. Arden's scientific findings, as well as a neighbor who heard the gunshot, placed the time of death shortly after they'd arrived at the apartment and well before any said trip to Best Buy would have occurred. But as it pertains to the position of the body, the lividity is noted on his right side, namely on the right and back side of the legs. Also found in the autopsy photos is a foreign impression near his right hip. Hypothetically, if Christian had been found more so on his back or right side over the tub and his body was then flipped over, maybe that would beg some questions. But like I said, you have to keep in mind other things we know of, such as Dylan's statement, which states very clearly that he found Christian hunched over the tub with his hands behind his back, which is then corroborated by police. To reiterate, Dylan didn't say he found Christian on his right side. And regardless of that, there have been no scientific findings that prove if Christian was shot in the bathroom that he could have landed in the position that Dylan and law enforcement found the body in. Other findings, such as the bullet strike on the wall, and the placement of the gun only further support that he couldn't have been found in the position he was found in. Gathering all the pieces, there's plenty of reason to believe that Christian's body would have been in a significantly different position on his right and back side for an extended period of time, long enough to show fixed liver, and then move to the position it was found in in the tub. As a culpable listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. One thing I've learned working in true crime is that your best line of defense is vigilance and preparation, which is why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. I happen to live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but as you know, crime has a way of being anywhere at any time, even when you least expect it. When our car was broken into and items were stolen, I was so relieved to know that my home security system got the footage, and it eventually led to us being reimbursed by the perpetrator once they were caught. Crime is just waiting to happen. So be prepared at all times and equip yourself with Simply Safe, the best home security system of 2024, according to US News and World Report. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/culpable. That's simplysafe 
com slash culpable. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hi there. I'm really enjoying the podcast. I wanted a little clarification on something, and that is, I think it's said a couple times that Whitley has handled or touched or embraced Christian's body after she saw that he was deceased. And I'm wondering if that is, in fact, confirmed to be true, and if that could account for the precarious body positioning regarding that it doesn't look like the body fell from a position from a suicide shot, just that if it could have been moved by her embracing the body and caused the precarious body positioning, and also if she had any blood on her person that would indicate that she did touch or move the body at all. Thank you, and keep up the good work. According to Dylan's statement to MPD, Whitley, quote, screamed and ran upstairs and began holding him, talking about Christian. In Whitley's statement, she says, quote, I hugged his waist and held his hand. There is nothing documented in the police report to indicate Whitley having any blood on her when police arrived. Hi, my name is Maggie. I'm listening from Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm loving Culpable. I just wanted to call in and ask kind of a two-part question, one about the gun residue and see if there was any way with the testing that was done at the time, if there was a possibility of seeing how recently the gun would have been shot, if, if that can even be tested based on the residue. Thank you so much. Loving the podcast. Well, you got to understand first that when a, when a handgun or firearm is discharged, there's a mass of debris that's ejected. It comes out of that firearm. So it's like a big plume of smoke. Well, in that plume of smoke are a lot of a, a lot of debris. That debris is primer residue. It's uh, residues from the projectile, residues from uh, partially burned and unburned gunpowder. It's very important to know that within the that residue there is lead, antimony, and barium, and that's what gunshot residue experts are looking for: those deposits of antimony, lead, and barium. And so when they perform GSR analysis on items of evidence, it allows us to do two important things. Number one, it enables us to determine if a hole or defect is consistent with being caused by a bullet. And number two, the patterns of the GSR on the evidence allow us to determine the muzzle to target distance, or what we also refer to as distance determination. In other words, it it helps us determine how far the gun was from the object that the bullet went into. It could be a contact wound, near contact, and even further. So I think it's important to kind of lay that foundation 
to help people understand part of what gunshot residue analysis is all about and why it's important. So I mentioned there's a large plume of smoke and debris that comes out of the gun when the gun is fired. And that debris will actually travel about three to five feet and it can cover and deposit on things that are in its path. So a person that fires a handgun will have GSR on the thumb web on his hand and the back of the firing hand, but not the palm. That's typically the scenario. It's not deposited on the palm because the hand that is gripping the gun, that palm hand is fixed closely to the gun, not allowing the residue, the plume of smoke to contaminate that side of the hand, the palm of the hand. So a person that handles the handgun without firing it may also have gunshot residue, but that gunshot residue could be on the palm and the fingers. A lot of people ask the question, how long does GSR last if a person has been in either fired a gun or been around a gun that's been discharged? As a general rule, it's between six to eight hours, and that could fluctuate an hour or two in either direction. When gunshot residue lands on clothing, that's a different story. It can last a number of years, provided that clothing has not been disturbed. So I think that's very important for people to understand. To that point, though, about the GSR mark, if somebody has shot a gun and then washes their hand or takes a shower, doesn't it come off with that? Oh, absolutely. Just doing the normal day-to-day activities that we do, that GSR is going to gradually go away. Now, what about if you shot a gun and you go to sleep, don't wash your hands, ooh, um, and get into a bed, wouldn't some of the GSR come off on the sheets? Oh, absolutely. Just your natural bodily functions, you know, you're sweating, that is also going to degrade the presence of GSR on your body. If a person tests positive for GSR, it tells us three things. That person discharged a firearm. It tells us that person was in close proximity to a discharged firearm. And finally, the person came into contact with an object that already had GSR on it. If a person has GSR on their person, on their hands, on their clothing, it puts them in that area where that firearm was discharged and they were either were responsible for the discharge of the firearm or they were in close proximity. Remember the three to five feet I spoke of, or they came in contact with the weapon after it was discharged. That's extremely important, especially when we're talking to witnesses and we get their statements or their testimony. Just knowing a little bit about GSR can help contradict what they're saying or corroborate what they're saying. My question is from a couple of episodes back, but I still it just still doesn't feel very clear to me. Why was it that Ray had friends watching Christian's apartment before he passed away? I know she wasn't really a big fan of Whitley, and she was there at the apartment a lot, but why go as far as watching it? Did she think she was going to catch somebody doing something or just that mother instinct of wanting to know like what was going on. Thanks guys. Keep up the good work. I am a mother. I believe that Ray knew something was wrong in her gut and 
Ray has a mental health background. She knew things weren't going well and she knew there were problems. I believe it was a sixth sense that Ray, as a mother, figured something was wrong and something bad was wrong, and she had Mary watch the apartment. Hi, this is Chris calling in from Champaign, Illinois. I just love your show. My question is, in the apartment, was there a washer and dryer? And if there was, did the police inspect that to see if laundry was in one of those, if they had been doing laundry, anything like that, if that area was ever checked to see it like for bloody cleanup from towels, that type of thing. So anyway, thanks. Keep it coming. I really enjoy the show. No, there was not a washer or dryer in the apartment. Christian and Josh had discussed buying a washer and dryer, but they had yet to make a purchase. According to Josh, one of the reasons they had held off on making a purchase was because he and Christian had been talking about moving away from Meridian. Hi, this is Katie in Houston. First off, huge thanks for y'all's efforts in shedding light on Christian's story, um, especially since the local and state law enforcement are actively trying to neglect it. My question is, how did you find out about Christian's case, and at what point in your research did you decide to create a podcast about it? Thanks. We found out about Christian's story in May of 2018 at a true crime convention called CrimeCon. Our sister company, Resonate Recordings, who primarily does post-production work on podcasts, was approached by Ray's niece about the case. We gave her our information, and a couple months later, in July of 2018, Ray reached out requesting more information on starting a podcast. Around this same time, we had started Black Mountain Media for content creation, and were looking to create our first show. After numerous talks with Ray, it was decided that taking on Christian's story was the right fit and something we felt called to do. Hi, my name is Stephanie. I'm calling from Georgia. And my question is about the gun and the evidence as far as there not being any blood or any other matter on the gun. Is it possible that this was not actually the gun that was used, but was simply the gun that was registered to Christian and so it was planted? Since that gun was clean, no blowback or blood, was it really the murder weapon? And you know, Mark, I've been asked about that. If they check the bullet against that particular gun and there was no brain matter on there, correct? That's a good question. I have not seen anything in any report that indicates that that cartridge and that projectile were examined for blood, DNA, tissue, wallboard, etc. I don't recall seeing in any reports also that that ballistics firearms examiner examined that cartridge to determine that it was fired from that handgun. Have you seen that? I haven't. That's one I, of the questions yeah, I have. They should have compared the markings on that cartridge that was found in the bathtub to determine if it was fired from that handgun that was at the scene. The original question was that you stated that uh, since that gun was clean, no blowback or blood, was it really the murder weapon? When a handgun is used in a suicide, especially, you know, a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, that handgun is going to have, it's going to be covered with blood. 
on the outside and even within the barrel. That's a critical piece of evidence. So if a handgun does not have any signs of blood, tissue, hair, that's a huge red flag because it tells me that that it's consistent with that scene being staged. Why would someone, if, if they're trying to make it look like someone committed suicide, why would they wipe a handgun down? Also, if they were wiping it down, I'm sure that there would be a large quantity of DNA still left on the gun within the barrel and even in certain nooks and crannies of a handgun. Was any of that actually performed in the lab to determine the presence of, of blood, which it should have been? Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So prior to going over to Dylan's, we knew that Dylan had a girlfriend named Mackenzie. We were able to get intel on Mackenzie that she carried a gun she had a very volatile temper. So we felt like it was important how she was approached. You had to go with complete caution when you approached her. With the knowledge that she had a volatile temper, she was protecting Dylan, and she carried a gun and she would show the gun we felt like not one person could approach her, but it had to have been more than one. We knew exactly what we were doing when we were following 
I believe it was Dana and Kenzie. I've been doing this for years. Anytime we go into an investigation and we're dealing with people who have involved themselves in illegal criminal activity, we, we take it very serious because lives can be in danger. We weren't afraid for ourselves. We are just extremely cautious. We're prepared. We go into a situation with the knowledge of as much information as possible about who we're dealing with, what their backgrounds are, what they're known to be capable of doing. So we don't take it lightly. And on this particular day, you know, we had several vehicles that were staged to follow Dana and Kinsey. And we were trying to get to them so that we could speak with Dylan. You know, Dylan is is a plays an extremely important role in this investigation. And he's been He's not only dodged us, he's dodged other investigators in the past. He's dodged networks, media. It's been hard to even roll up on him and get him to say anything. So we followed these girls to the Sonic, pulled in right next to them. And one thing that was very unusual about this Sonic is that the music there was blaring like we were at an outdoor concert. And I was driving the vehicle. I pulled right up next to the passenger side of their vehicle, rolled down my window, and they made a few comments, but I could not hear what they were saying at all. And so I wanted to engage them in a conversation. I get out of the vehicle. And, you know, by nature, I pride myself as being very professional, extremely cordial. And I had no reason to be anything but professional and cordial in this particular case. I wanted information. So I get out of the vehicle. I approach their vehicle. I told them that uh, I was looking for Dylan. And, you know, they became very, very hostile towards me. You know, and I'm, I'm talking to them in, in such a manner that I'm, I'm not yelling at them. I'm, I may be speaking loudly because the music is blaring and we had a difficult time hearing each other, but it, it didn't go anywhere productive or positive. They, they were dropping the F-bombs to me left and right. I just kept my composure. I don't feel that I was aggressive. There was no need to be aggressive. I just wanted to meet them and uh, find out whatever I could from them. I gave them my business card so they knew exactly who I was. I'm not trying to hide my identity or... When you gave the business card, it's been used by the girl's spouse, correct? He placed a call, uh, went straight to my voicemail. He basically threatened my wife that he would come after her because I allegedly was coming after his wife or, or girlfriend. That's just another reason why we, we have to be very cautious because you just don't know what's going to happen. And the fact that we knew that... Kenzie carried a firearm a few weeks later she pulled it on somebody don't you think the approach you had uh, made more sense oh absolutely if we ever had to do it again I'd do it the same I'd be professional cordial I'd be very cautious and my objective would be to keep my team safe and myself safe and also to protect those people that that I'm dealing with We also received several questions via email, and I'll have Sheila address a few of those. In your investigation, was it hard to find the witnesses? 
when we started the investigation and we started in Key West, it was very hard to find the particular witnesses because there was no forwarding address. So it took a lot of legwork. The investigators, Jay and Mike, that were down there did a fantastic job going after one lead after another. Once they were able to locate Whitley, they were able to surveil her and see her routine. What goes into investigations? When you take a case, you want to know who the characters are. In this particular case, we had two days to do 27 interviews. With that, we had to track them down, have their profile on if they're volatile or not. And it was good that we had that kind of background with Kenzie. You know, we knew she had a possession of firearm. We knew she had a very volatile temper and she was erratic. So when Mark approached, it was good that we had that information. There were other witnesses like Chelsea that we knew that she had gone through some hard times. She was going to school, going to work, and trying to get her life on track. She was not going to take the same approach as we had to do with Kenzie. The things that you need to look for in an investigation when you're looking at the witnesses in this case, are they on drugs? Have they been arrested for drugs? Are they dealing drugs? Are they a confidential informer? What are their backgrounds and who's the right fit in approaching them? When we were at my house, it looked different from when we got to Meridian. We scrambled in, tweaked all the different investigations and interviews because of the reaction. Now, the interesting thing was the witnesses are volunteering more witnesses, and people obviously are calling and talking. And the ones that are coming forward to us who have written and emailed, text messaged, and left tips, we appreciate that. This is a town that really wants to talk and help the Andriacchios, but it's been silenced, and now it's not. This investigation is helping people speak up and not be afraid. How did the investigators stay safe in Meridian? Safety is a huge factor in any investigation. Jay Marin usually handles the security, and he is very good at picking a safe house for us to all stay in. We stay together, we work in pairs, and we have systems in place so someone knows where we are at all times. We put GPS trackers on our own cars, we check in with one another, and we eat at night and we have an 11 o'clock meeting at night to go over everything. Also, we had Lori as the command center. One of Lori's job was to know where everybody was at all times, whether she checked in on our phones or a phone call or the GPS, she knew where we were. This was a very hostile environment for all of us, not because of the average citizen. Are the investigators going back to Meridian? The simple answer is no. We've got everything we need. We knew before the podcast started, we had to have all our information. 
we've made trips more than once to Meridian in order to get that information. How do you know if a witness is lying? Before we go into an investigation or a witness interview, we know the answers to a lot of the questions we have. One of the things we do is we throw very easy questions to them, not anything that's not out there, just very simple. For instance, were you at gun night? Well, we have a list. If someone says no and they're on the list, we know they're going to lie. So you have to take those things into consideration. Thanks again for tuning in for this Q&A episode. Please continue to call in with your questions at 470-300-4915. And remember to tune in this coming Monday, September 2nd, for episode 13. Copable is a production of Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and me, Mark Minery. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Resonate Recordings. Theme music and score by Dirt Poor Robbins. Cover art by Drew Bardana. I want to extend a special thanks to Mike Hines, Sheila Wysocki, and Lance Black. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information related to the death of Christian Andriacchio, please email us at tips at blackmountainmedia.net or call us at 470-300-4915. Thank you for listening, and tune in for new episodes every Monday.